Hello, everybody. This is Gary and Casey back for chapter two of Romans. We will go through the first 16 verses. Yeah, we will. To make it sound exactly like you did last time. <laughs> I didn't say that last time, did I? <laughs> <laughs> last time I whooped, but then you didn't leave me a space to whoop also, so my whoop got lost. <laughs> <laughs> my whoop. <laughs> Sorry, I'm in a mood. Um, I will pray us in, and then Casey will read through. Cool, cool. Um, so, dear God, um, please be with us today as we go through the first half of chapter two. Um, please help us. Um, take from your word what you would like us to hear um, and help us have some good discussion and maybe not go down so many rabbit trails um, and just uh, guide our conversation and help us help us find what you would like us to find today. Um, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Cool. So I'm going to read Romans 2, 1 through 16 in the ESV. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man. Every one of you who judge, judge, perseverance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, but all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Um, so verse one here, therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things there's a lot there yeah but it all has one fairly similar meaning that like if you judge others you're judging your you're condemning yourself because you are inexcusable that's what i'm getting like you've done wrongs yourself so you have no okay. excuse to be judging the whole yeah. the whole idea of like what jesus said with deal with the speck in your own eye before or the plank in your own eye before getting the speck in your brothers because we have done so much stuff that we can't possibly judge somebody else and we can't help somebody else until we help ourselves yeah and this goes back to the ending of last week's chapter 
where you know sort of what like listing out all of those different sins and we sort of had a conversation there um about judging and this this goes right into that judging part like you you can't judge because everybody has sin sure you don't know what sin is it's listed in the previous chapter you have any more thoughts on this one case I think I got the deal without there. It's not probably helpful because it just reiterates it. But I think it's very easy to come up with excuses why we're doing things or like why we can help somebody else or why we can judge somebody else, but we don't actually have any excuse on one. The previous chapter we talked about like no one has any excuse on like knowing God because God's revealed himself, right? So um yeah, I think it's easy to make up, make excuses for why things are either okay that we do this, or it's okay that we do this, or it's not okay that we don't do this, when what Paul is saying here is that there is no excuse. Um, very much so, like, we, we, we know better because we've been told repeatedly um, and we also, like, have our own Sins and so we can't judge anyway. That was all that was lame. But the <laughs> she's also leading to like we can't judge, judgment is for God. Yes, ma'am. That was it. That was my thought. Verse two. <laughs> but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So as we were just saying, judgment is for God. The judgment of what? We know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Weird. <laughs> how's yours <how's> written? <laughs> when it says we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Anyway, it's just an interesting, my brain was like, wait, huh? Well, you know, I think those two ideas, though, both go hand in hand, like, God judges truthfully, whereas yours is like God's judgment rightly falls on people. And if he's judging truthfully, then yes, it does rightly fall. 100%. My brain just could not wrap around the fact that yours had the word truth in it. Mine did not. And I was looking at it and I was like, where does that word fit? (laughs) It's fine. About who God is and how he's good and just. And if he wasn't good and just, then... Maybe we haven't talked about this yet, but we talked about his goodness versus, you know, like subjective goodness and subjective badness. Um, I don't think we actually did yet. Did yes, we? we did because I was just editing that in chapter one case. Oh, <laughs> never mind. So we talked about good and bad and bad and evil, and that. And I know at some point we do have a conversation about righteousness and justice. So we don't need to get into that here either. I was just going to say, since we've already talked about it, and we'll talk about it more later, I think, of God's goodness. I don't, I just think that's important to note in saying, like, the judgment of God, because we don't often think of the judgment of God as being a good thing, but God is good. He doesn't do anything that's not good. So just noting that the that judgment from God is good. And it's a good thing, even if it doesn't feel like it. 
all the time. Yes. Anyway, yes. Okay. First three. First three. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So it's just sort of reiterating what the last point was. You can't escape God's judgment, good or bad. You can't escape it. Yeah. However you judge someone else, God will judge you. Yeah. I do think that it's cool the way that Paul phrased it. Like, do you really think that you're going to escape judgment? Really? Verse four then. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Your uses the word long-suffering, mine uses the word patience. Those don't always mean the same thing, but it's interesting that they use them in the same spot. In long-suffering, you have patience because you're not going to suffer for a lengthy period of time, right? Long-suffering, self-explanatory, unless you have patience to follow through. But... You can have patience in something without it being sufferable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, I don't know if that's a very helpful description. <laughs> uh, makes sense in my mind. Long suffering is obviously you're suffering for a long period of time, whereas patience is often comes in the form of waiting, which people hate waiting, especially nowadays. Right, right, right. Where we have fast food. <laughs> it's just like, I don't want to wait for anything. And then they go to Wendy's yeah. or whatever and get some food. Instant um, gratification but... yeah. society. What is forbearance? Do you know? I do. The first thing that I thought of with forbearance is like loans. It's just because I'm paying some student loans and love some brain things. So. But I think forbearance kind of goes with that. It's like a Okay, so in the sense of like loans, right, if you get a forbearance on your loan, they're basically just holding it where it's at until you pay it, until you're able, like, for a length of time, until you're able to pay it back. But it's not like it's indefinite pause until you're able to pay it back. Like, it's a certain length of time, and then after that, you're expected to pay your debt. And I think that forbearance of God kind of goes with that. It's not like God's like, well, your time's up. You got to pay your debt now. That's not how God works. But it's like his his patience and willingness of like waiting. And he's already paid. The... Patience, self-control, restraint, and tolerance. So it's a restraint from taking action. Okay, yes. And in terms of your loans, it would be a restraint from making you pay them. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Yes, I can explain it, but I can use many, many words that don't say the right thing. Okay, that's fine. I'm good. <laughs> so this question here, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Great. Phrase it a different way. Do you despise his goodness and patience and restraint? But mine uses the word patience. And restraint. I think that's interesting to say, use the word restraint, because honestly, if you think about it, and I don't think this is necessarily accurate of God, but it's very interesting. If you think about it in human terms, restraint is very much like, if oh, I have a lot of restraint right now to keep myself from doing something like in anger or like. I restrain myself from doing something I shouldn't. <laughs> yes. And it's usually. Like I'm restraining myself from doing something against somebody else because of 
the emotion that I'm feeling. That's probably not great. So I think that's an interesting word to use for God. Well, if you think about it, though, you but, could think of, you know, something evil happens in the world and God restrains himself from taking action. Like and imagine, the- like, all of the feelings that God would be having about this evil thing that's happening in the world, right? And okay. you as a human being, you're, you have these intense emotions. Imagine, you know, the scale of God's emotions, right? The inventor of all emotion. The restraint, you know, that sort of heavenly restraint, all of the power that he possesses to not necessarily do something because he knows that the best course of action might be to do nothing right now, mm-hmm. even though that might be the hardest thing to do. Mm-hmm. That's true. That, yeah, that was my thought. Anyway. Do you have any more um, thoughts on Grace 4? Maybe. I, I, I just like how he phrases, like, do you despise the riches of his goodness? Mine doesn't actually use that word. Mine says, or do you presume on the riches of his, of all his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Interesting. So basically, it's saying, like, hey, just because you know God is good and forgiving, without using those words, that you know he's going to forgive you and pay the debt for you, but you shouldn't keep sinning because you know that. Like, you should, it should lead you to repentance and not to keep sinning. Right, because in the previous verse, it's asking, like, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? And then this one is like, are you just going to cast aside all of that and just, you know, cast away all of his goodness, his riches, his mercy? Because when you face or take on that judgment, like, all of those riches come with it. Uh Right here, yeah, at the end of the verse, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance. Like trying to trying to sum up that whole idea right there. Basically, are you dumb? Are you are you dumb? Are you dumb? (laughs) Only he's trying to say it in a much nicer way. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Uh, Good job, Paul. Much better than I am. Um, Imagine what this would say if you wrote it, Case. (laughs) (laughs) And the world is glad I didn't. Okay. Um, verse five. Verse five. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. I feel like that was a long verse. Okay, hold on. So in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart. So I think the hardness part is fairly self-explanatory, but um, I just want to point out that it's, you know, at least here translated the same way that say like if you go back and read like the old testament stories of you know like the pharaoh and god gave him a hard heart mm-hmm. they're using that same word here i think i just came up with a funny analogy but i'm going to share it anyway and you guys can deal with it um not an analogy a weird way of explaining it anyway go for it um you know when there's like a brick wall and you can't get through it because it's hard and like you hurt yourself before you'll hurt the brick. Well, maybe brick is kind of soft. You can hit it with some damp loop. But it was like, if you did it with like your hand, you would hurt your hand before you hurt the brick. Like you can't get through it. And a hard heart is the same way. Like you can't break through a hard heart and make any progress. But like if you can, in contrast to that, you have a soft heart. If you've had like a wall made of like vines or flowers or something like softer, like, or like, basically 
a wall of goo, you could just scrape away the goo and like, you know, get the first it. image that came to my mind when you said a soft heart or like a soft wall was for some reason jello. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if you had like a wall of bricks and a wall of jello, you're not I don't... Gonna, you're like if those are your two options to getting through the other side of the wall, you're not gonna pick the brick wall, right? You're gonna pick the pick the jello wall because you're gonna be able to get away and you probably eat some of it on the way it tastes delicious. <laughs> <laughs> not that you want to eat somebody's heart but the point is like that's the difference between a hard heart and, and a, a soft, soft one. heart is god gave us free will so he's not gonna force his way into like your brick wall if you don't want him there he's not gonna be there but on a jello wall like he's gonna scrape away some jello here and there and like because you're you're allowing him to do that. <clears throat> that might be where the analogy breaks down a little bit. But the point being that a hard heart is very much like you keep everything out and you don't let new things in, um, especially like new ideas or um, something that'll change you or things that you're scared will change you, even though those are good things. Whereas like a jello wall will very easily like break and crumble and like let things in. Give a, um, a little summary of all of that to say because you're good at like shortening what I said. <laughs> that a hard heart keeps people out and a soft heart can let people in. Basically. Um, in a very, very short way of saying it. Um, bricks and jello, people, bricks and jello. <laughs> Maybe cement. Maybe cement wall would be different. It's, it's tougher than, than bricks. Um, I was also looking up the word impenitent because it's not really a word that's used that often or heard that often. Um, mm -hmm. But an impenitent heart would be not feeling shame or regret about one's actions. Basically, someone who has antisocial personality disorder. No shame, no regret. And that is the psychologist in you speaking. Um, so not feeling shame or regret for your actions so having an impenitent heart you're not yes but it's not quite to the extreme that you your brain your science brain goes <laughs> not to the extent of antisocial your personality disorder brain, but... not yeah um I would say that would go for anything I think of any sin that you have that you don't feel remorse for doing mm -hmm. it's the same thing and that can be little things to like a little white lie to something big, you know, like. Right. And this verse is saying like, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent hearts, it's like acknowledging that like, everybody has this. Um, everybody has some hardness. Everybody has some impenitence. Okay, give me your definition because I was gonna write it down to add to our list of words. Not feeling shame or regret for your actions. Does that mean impenitent can be a good thing? Like if you're not feeling shame for following God, would you still be considered impenitent or is it mostly for negative things? Um, I think the context here is negative, but I don't know if you can use it in a positive context. Oh, I'm just curious. I'm gonna go with probably not because I've never heard it used positively, but okay. I didn't know if it could be. If you look at the um, word origin, it comes from Latin or yeah, from ecclesiastical Latin, meaning not repenting. I just find that interesting. Oh, that sounds about right. And that fits our context. 
better. Yeah. But yeah, so continuing on with this verse, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. I like that it says you're treasuring up wrath for yourself because that's almost in a way of like, oh, you treasure that in your heart. Like it's almost like we use it in a very positive way of like keeping something. But in this case, it's like- The dragon who is the hoarding the treasure? <laughs> no. I was going to say okay. almost treasuring the sin that's caused is going to cause the wrath later. So I just think it's an interesting way to phrase it. Continuing on with this verse, in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Mine says, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I don't know that I really have thoughts. I just think that that's, you know, the uh, end times, talking about revelation in the world, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, is the day of wrath a specific day or event that he's referring to, like the end of the world? But then you just answered that? Yeah. I, yeah, I would assume anyway that he's talking about, um, because that's when we're all going to see God's judgment. So really, really depending on probably how you read the text, that'll either be at the end of your life, you'll be judged and you die, or everybody will be raised and be judged at the same time. I mean, individually, but like at the same time. Right. So at the, you know, the end of either when you die or like when Jesus comes back again, you'll see both his wrath, you know, his judgment on the world and the revelation of his righteous judgment. That he's righteous and he's good. You'll see both of those things. So just for like, I guess, remembering that his wrath is a righteous wrath. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts on that? Um, no, just that it's interesting to call wrath righteous. I think it's just so commonly not. Like, people there, would yeah. assume that wrath is unrighteous. There's it's, such a negative connotation to it, yeah. The wrath and to judgment, yeah. But they're good when they come from God, and they're righteous and just. Verse 6 is sort of the end of the sentence, at least in my version. So it isn't a full sentence in and of itself. Uh, but it says, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Um, and oh, it has it italicized, mine? so I think it's uh, referencing another verse somewhere. Mine doesn't say that, but mine, maybe it does if you study my but mine's not. But um, mine actually connects that to the next verse, to verse 7, not to verse 5. It's to mine, verse 6 and 7, it says, He will render to each one according to his works, uh, to those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and mortality, he will give eternal life. And then it continues into eight and finishes the sentence. But well, mine's all one long sentence that doesn't end, <laughs> which Paul's good at. So that's true. He's good at doing sentence. Um, but in, I think it connects better to seven than to five. Be at least maybe that's just because of the way mine is set up. Right. Because it, it says he will render each one according to his works, and then says, "Hey, if you're good, basically you have all these these good things you have turned away from. If you're not and sinful, then you'll have." Wrath and Fury. So I just think it connects better for me. That's okay. fine. But if it connects on yours, I just, yeah, we can talk about it. That's fine. We're going to talk about it anyway. <laughs> Give me one second, because I think there's a note on here that might be helpful. So let me look at it. It connects to Psalm 62.12 and Proverbs 24.12. Psalm 62.12. 62.12. 
12 says, and not to you, O Lord, belong steadfast love, for you are rendered to a man according to his word. And Proverbs 24, 12. And that was written by David. Um, Psalms, nope, Proverbs what? <laughs> Proverbs 24, 20, 12. 24. In my head, I was like, Proverbs, as I'm flipping to it, and then my brain was like, Psalms? Um, 24, 12. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does he... Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Yeah, same idea. But yeah, so just going back to verse six here, and like, I just find it interesting that mine's italicized. And I don't really know why it's italicized because it isn't like a direct, like, verse quotation. So I just find that interesting. Yeah, that's just interesting. I don't know, man. I think this, I think the only thing worth noting. And maybe maybe not the only thing. One of the things worth noting, maybe about this verse, is that right, he's talking that about how God will basically give you what you deserve, almost based on how you've lived your life. But it's not specifically like do all these works because we've talked about that before, or we'll talk about it again. I'm sure. Like, there's a whole thing of like you can't receive God by working for it. Like that's all by faith but if you have faith then your works will show it so it's like connected but i just don't want anyone to think that like you're gonna have eternal life because you perceive your life and like you're doing all these things but you don't actually follow god or listen to him right you can't in any sense work your way to heaven um and yet you will still be judged for the deeds that you have done okay but Doing those deeds is not how you get to heaven. Does that make sense? Because yeah. mm-hmm. that's what the Pharisees thought when they lived by tradition and then crucified Jesus when he didn't follow their tradition. So into verse 7, since mine is worded kind of weirdly because, again, it's not, not a full sentence. So, eternal life to those who, by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and mortality, he will give eternal life. I think that's a cool way to put it. Like, you have to have patience. We talked about it a little bit earlier. Um, we talked about God's patience. Um, right. And this is speaking specifically to patience in doing good. Continuously yeah, doing good. patience in well-doing, well which I think is, is a cool way to put it because it's not just like you're doing these things but you're doing these things in for good, like in a good way. And uh, doing good can be this hard or frustrating process that you need patience for. <laughs> that is true. There's a reason patience is listed. By patient continuance doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Yeah, so I guess just by like doing good things sort of brings you to glory, honor, and immortality in a way. Like your patience and your perseverance in doing these good works um, for God. And as we said, like, um, it's not those that cause, you know, you to be able to go to heaven. It's not how it works. Um, But when you get to know God and you trust God and you are obedient to his word, as we were talking about before, somewhere in chapter one, that you're 
your good works naturally come out of your relationship with him. And in that way, seeking his glory and seeking honor and seeking immortality. And one way to do that is by doing these good works and by trusting God. Mm-hmm. I only want to clarify, we're not talking about like earthly glory or earthly honor, which are very um, self-seeking things. These are very much seeking God's glory and God's honor. Mm-hmm. Have any more thoughts on that before I go to verse eight? I don't think so. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Which I think goes well with verse seven in the, in the sense that it's like flipped. Like, hey, if you're seeking God, then you'll have eternal life. But if you're seeking yourself and you, you're not obeying the truth, which is God, um, then that's where the wrath and fury come in and not eternal life. Well said. <laughs> Any thoughts about that before I move on? Um, I don't think so, unless you have um, thoughts on that before. No. It's, it's really just nicely mirrored. It's, yeah, I mean, like, it's nicely put. Um, yeah. In your version, at least, because mine's just one giant run-on sentence from, like, verse 5 onwards <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> when you read Greek, it's really hard to tell sometimes where sentences end. Um, so, I get it. So Verse 9 and 10. I will read... Yeah, I'll read both. Um, okay, so verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 10. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And then we keep doing verse 11. For God shows no partiality. I just like the way that that's put. Like there's basically going to be tribulation and distress for every single person who does evil, which is everybody because before we follow Jesus, because everyone does that the Jew and the Greek, everybody, everybody's encompassed. Um, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, just following Jesus, the Jew first and also the Greek. Again, that's everybody because God shows no partiality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mine said tribulation and anguish in every soul of man who does evil. I like that, anguish. Tribulation and anguish. I think anguish is, is a strong word. And that's another word that's not used very often. Who just is like, oh, I'm anguished. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> it's too dramatic. I wish people could see see how you like <laughs> act that out. <laughs> <sighs> well, if you ever put this um recorded Zoom call online anywhere, we'll be see it. Um, but yeah, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. I like how mine puts it on every soul of man. And I don't know if we've talked about this or we will talk about it at some point in case, but like what a soul is. Uh, we haven't talked about it yet. But like the thought in my head is like I heard this quote once and I don't remember where. Um, but like, and I don't remember exactly what it is, but like the general gist of it is like 
you are a soul, you have a body. Mm -hmm. And not like the other way around. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people think of like the soul as sort of like this spirit thing that's like disconnected from your body that's inside of you. They know like when you die, your like soul goes to heaven or something. Mm -hmm. But you are the soul. It's not separate from you. You are the soul. Uh-huh. The thing that's separate from you is your body. <laughs> you are a soul, you have a body. <laughs> uh-huh. Not like you are your body, you have a soul. Like people think, think you have a soul, but like, no, you are a soul. Like you have one, you are one. Uh-huh. Like the idea that we have, like we have very finite human bodies that like grow old and fade away and like whatever. But your soul doesn't do that. Your soul. Your soul is eternal. Sort of eternal. So you are eternal. Not like God's eternal, though. I want to clarify, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Did not mean, yeah. There are differences. Um, as much as, like, as this chapter is talking about, like, if you're following God and doing good, you know, have eternal life. Right. But then you also have to think of, like, those people who are not also have eternity. They're just in hell rather than in heaven although this is just a thought this verse doesn't actually say that like it's not like oh they're gonna have eternal life like in anguish and like wrath and fury but it just says they're gonna have wrath and fury mm-hmm. so i'm just curious about that it would be interesting to do a study case on heaven and hell and see what the bible actually says about them based on or like what are the differences between what people commonly believe and what the bible actually says yeah that's true but we don't have to get into it right here. <laughs> nope, wrong place and time. But yeah, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. So, and a lot of times, in especially in like modern society, people tend to think of, you know, like first is somehow best. Um, and here, that's not really what it's conveying. It's not saying that Jews are any better than Greece. It's just saying that the Jews are like, I don't know how to say this. You got this, I believe in you. Like God came through like his chosen people, so to speak, and like his word came through the Jews and then out into the rest of the world. So it was the Jews first and then the other people. But it's not saying anyone is any better than anybody else. It's just that right. is it saying that is just his law onward hit them first. Yeah. Basically. It just it came first through the Jews and then spread out to the rest of the world. Which it's got to start somewhere. So why not the Jews? I had a thought and then it went away. Oh, I was going to say, just also remember, like Romans is written by a Jew to Gentiles, like to a church in a Gentile nation. So I think he says that more in this book than some others because he wants to make sure that like, they know like, hey, like, this is not just for the Jews, this is for you too. It's not only, yeah, it's not only for my people or for the Jewish people, mm-hmm. but like it, it's for everyone. Even if it it's came to us first, a. it's, even if it came for us first, it's for everyone. Yeah. Everybody. But then down to verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, um, which is basically just a continuation of what we had just been talking about. Yeah. A different way of saying what seven and eight verses seven and eight said 
is what nine and 10 say. Mm -hmm. I like how Paul likes to reiterate stuff in Sam in different ways, but like he's repeating the same thing a lot mm -hmm. in his chapters. Sometimes when, when I read these, especially if I read them multiple times, like at the same time or near each other, I'm kind of like get a little annoyed as Paul. I'm like, yeah, you already said that. Yep, you already said that. Yep, you already said that. But for people who like read it the first time, especially in such a different culture, it's definitely better to repeat than not to. It's just it, like if I was a Gentile back then and I was reading this or hearing this multiple times, I would be like, yeah, yeah, Paul, you said that already. Move along. But that's also just me and I am weird. So. Right. Well, I think also it's just sort of that idea of like, I'm going to tell it to you. I'm going to tell it to you in as many ways as I possibly can. Because if you didn't understand it the first time, you're going to understand it the second time or the third time or the tenth time. Like, I'm going to repeat it until you get it into your head that. Yeah. No, it's definitely better yeah. to repeat. Um, I just sometimes get a note of repetition. Yeah. But I don't mean to. <laughs> but keep in mind, although, also that um, if you think about like, for the Jews, at least, like when they went to school as children, like they're made to like memorize parts of the the Bible or the the Torah, at least, um, okay. which is the first five books. Okay. And so they probably have a lot of those like repetition memory skills in there that they work off of. I would think you have to like I mean, repeat it until it's drilled into your head, right? Um, yeah, all of the Jews were at this point in where Romans being written. Right. Um, so if you think of like, we're all taught the yeah. Torah and the Old Testament. Yeah. So if you think about how Paul is like trained to think, he's like has that like training of like let's repeat it so that you really understand it. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if the, the Romans have similar ways of teaching, but they might have. Yeah. Hard to say. I mean, they probably are a little bit different, but because um, it is a different culture. But it is also believers. And so there's got to be probably some similarities from how they're being taught by Jews. Mm -hmm. So the churches will be a little more similar than you'd think, maybe. Um, verse 11 here, very plain statement, for there is no partiality with God. Um, and again, going back to what we were just talking about, Jew first, also the Greek, like there's no partiality. Like one is not better than the okay. other. Yep. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So the law here is referencing the law of God. And this is what like Jews would have considered this to be the, the law of Moses. You know, God gave him the law, you know, the Ten Commandments on the mountain. And so that's where the law started. And over time, they like built that up and in so much as you know, like Jewish culture and like Pharisees and stuff and like really adhered to the law and like made it way more specific than it actually was supposed to be. Am I explaining that right, Chris? I think you're doing great. I, <laughs> the only clarification that I would make is that we're specifically talking about God's law in this section. There are some places later, I think there's a different way of reading it. If I remember great, maybe I'm wrong. Where there's like, it's talking about earthly law which is a different type of law but here you're talking about god's judgment and god's law and i just want to make that clear continue you were doing great right. so being under the law here i think in because it's god's law 
um, it would then apply to those people who believe in God. So those are the people who are considered under the law. And those who are considered not under the law are those people who do not believe in God and therefore do not know the law. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded very hesitant. Sorry, I was writing a note. Yes, I believe so. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sinned under the law will be judged. Basically, repeating kind of the top, like the top, the past few verses where it's been talking about, like, well, if you know God, then you're going to be doing his good things, and you're going to be judged rightly that way. And if you were not, if you're under the law, because you're still like under God, but you're not following the law. But there's also a difference to not being under the law and being judged differently um, for that, because if you're not following God's law, you don't know it yet. But I think that there's there's a difference in knowing God and knowing his law and following it to knowing God and not yet knowing his laws. If you're like super like a, a little baby, baby Christian, baby, a little baby believer, a little baby in diapers. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if that was the mind. Anyway, so... <laughs> There's a difference between between maturity in knowing these things and in, and in faith and immaturity in faith and not knowing necessarily. But if right. you're under the law, you're gonna perish in the law. And if you're without the law, you're still gonna perish without the law if you never learn it. Right. Yeah. And this was saying here, you have sinned without law, but also perish without law, meaning that like you just you don't know the law, so you can't abide by it. Uh-huh. So you're not necessarily going to be, I don't know if this is the correct case, but like you're not necessarily going to be judged by the same standard because you don't know what those standards are. Is that how that works? <laughs> sort of. It would be like kind of how we, like our court systems judge kids differently than adults. And you try to get tried different because kids don't necessarily know better when they do something. I mean... There is a degree where it's like, well, you should know not to murder somebody. But um, where if they commit a crime, like they steal something, it, they're going to be tried different than an adult who fully knows better and understands that it's not okay. And I think that the same thing with like, if you don't know God's law, like you're going to be tried in like God's, you know, courtroom and judgment, right? Um, however you picture that is going to look different if you know god than if you don't know god versus but if you, if you do know god it's gonna look different if you know the lot and really don't yet but i think you'll still be tried harshly if you don't know god and don't know his law right well I, I, think think that I think it's i think it's good to point out though that like um what however it is that god judges you under the law or not under the law it will still be righteous judgment and nobody will be able to say that it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Regardless, yes. God is still a good judge. Right. And so going into verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For not the I think that's worded kind of weirdly in mind. Can you say yours? For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So if you hear the law, but do nothing about it, that's different than if you actually hear the law and do it. So if you hear God's law and you follow it, 
thumbs up for me you're doing great right but then if you hear the law but like don't ever make any changes in your life to follow that law then thumbs down <laughs> boo shame um and then verse 14 for when gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law these although not having the law are a law to themselves so gentiles mm-hmm. do not have the law because they've never been taught that law right because right. it's very new then, to them still right. like 30 but, years into it maybe tops right so right. imagine like this was in written maybe 25 years after Jesus' death right and so remembering that like the law was sent to the jews right and so the jews had that and here is like the disciples and the apostles are going out and trying to spread the word and so like a lot of people don't know what that word is they don't know that law mm-hmm. so here it's saying the gentiles do not have the law but by nature do things in the law become a law to themselves mm-hmm. and that continues in in the next verse and explaining it more but basically even if they've never you've never heard the law like what we were talking about i think earlier like you don't have any excuse you you don't because even the gentiles who had never heard were still following the law without actually ever hearing it right and i think like it's good to point out that like there are some things that are universal wrongs and they may not look the same everywhere but there's still some underlying truths that everybody adheres to you know, like murdering a child or like, you're not going to find that that's true in any culture where that's okay. Or, well, this isn't necessarily true because there was, you know, like child sacrifices and stuff. I was like, there's probably some still, but like um, the unreached people's groups. But like, there's still like, for the most part, there's, there are underlying truths that might be hard to pinpoint for human beings, but like, there are some underlying things that all peoples everywhere consider true. Or wrong uh-huh. even if i gave a bad example <laughs> i mean i think it did did great aside from those few cultures that are still around do you know what it means here when it says they are a lot to themselves i think that explains it a little bit in verse 15 when we get there okay or, so let's read to verse 15 then yeah who show the work of the law written on their hearts their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So when it's talking about them being a law unto themselves, I think it means like like this is saying like the work is of the like the laws written on their hearts and their conscience bears witness. Like they they're almost even though they don't have like a written out law that they like know and follow yet, they still have the law, it's just in them. So they are the law. Right, and I, I like how here it's like it says the work of the law written in their hearts. So it's some sort of ingrained piece of everybody where we were saying that like there are some universal truths. Uh-huh. It's written on your heart. And I like this phrase here, conscience also bearing witness. And so like just sort of like guess an expansion on the universal truths, like your conscience tells you right from wrong and everybody has a conscience. But then I also think like the end of this verse, between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So it's sort of like um, some of that justification that we were talking about before. Does that make sense to you? Yes. Do you have another thought? No. I started to like 
keep reading. I don't know why. So I kind <laughs> it of just looked like you were thinking really. It just looked and, like you were thinking really hard, Case. I didn't know if you had another. Great, I'm glad. I totally spaced. I'm having no idea what you just said. <laughs> we're being completely honest. I was saying that you know the thoughts accusing or else excusing them um, is is sort of like just like how people justify themselves or their, what they've done. If your thoughts accuse you, you know, like maybe you've done something wrong and your conscience is like accusing you, like you've done this, like a guilt factor, or else excusing you, you're justifying what you've done and therefore you don't feel that shame and regret that we were talking about earlier. That what's that where the start of the I, the in in determinable heart, that's not the right word, in something heart, um, in penitent heart, where there's no shame and no regret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then again, you could also interpret this first elseways. So mm-hmm. that's just what came to my mind. Yeah. I thought of it, and I don't know if this is right, but this is what came to mind. And you can tell me that I'm wrong if I am. My thought was that, I don't know how to explain it, but like more, and rather than like your thoughts accusing you in the sense of like shame and guilt. I thought of it more in like almost accusing like a judgment your thoughts here in like so you have God's laws written on your heart and so then that would automatically be in your thoughts to some degree and I guess I don't know how to explain this but um what you do with it and the conflict there is either going to excuse accuse you in wrath and judgment or it'll excuse you from wrath and judgment that makes sense. I didn't really get it. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I like I said, I don't know if this is right. So um I could be very, very wrong in all of this. But basically, if we have the law of God on our hearts, right? Then it's automatically in our thoughts because they're connected. Mm-hmm. Right. And so here you're gonna have conflicting thoughts because you're gonna have God's law and like doing that against what your normal humanly maybe not normal like sinful nature might tell you so you're literally like conflicting and how you actually like handle that will either accuse you or excuse you i kind of get that yeah there's conflict (laughs) but if you choose the good then that excuses you but if you choose the bad and keep doing that and ignore it then that's the accusatory part Right, I think that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> Ain't that better? <laughs> Don't know how. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't mean, I don't know. I think there's multiple ways you can interpret what this one means. Mm-hmm. Which is not to say that the Romans of the time may have understood it perfectly. We don't know. It would still be different because of the cultural context and them already like knowing that and having a relationship with Paul to some degree already built to like build upon that changes how you read something right which is why I was saying that they might understand the sentence even if we don't yeah but verse 16 so this is our last verse um Woo-hoo! in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel on that day when According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. 
Right. So he's basically saying all of the stuff here of like judging under the law and your thoughts, accusing you or not accusing you or whatever, all of this is going to come on the day when God judges. So on judgment day, whenever that comes, either at death or when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, however you believe that's going to happen, like all of this stuff he's talking about here, all of the judgment is going to take place then on the day of judgment. Um, and I just like here how he points out the secrets of he will judge the secrets of men. So all of the things that you hide away that you never tell anybody that you have ever done. Yeah, I mean, like everybody has secrets. So a secret, <laughs> secrets of your heart, secret actions that you have done. Like even the most mm-hmm. honest people, there are things that nobody knows about them, right? Mm-hmm. Even the people who know them the best don't know everything. Um, but so here in I don't that know if day. accurate. I don't know if I agree with that entirely. I would say everyone has had secrets. I don't know that everyone has secrets currently, and I would make that distinction. Well, okay, so I guess it depends on your view of secret, because I think that there are things that nobody else could ever possibly know about you, even the people who have lived with your entire life and know everything about you. <laughs> there are things that they could never possibly know, because maybe it's, maybe it's not even like an intentional secret, like you're not hiding it, but maybe it just never come up. Well, I would say I would define secret as like, something you know and are keeping from somebody right not like oh I fell down and scabbed my knee when I was 10 like nobody cares about that (laughs) and that doesn't count as a secret because you just assume that happens to everybody anyway right so So it just yeah so a secret would be something you're intentionally hiding right so here it just sort of depends on what you're saying is secret like what is the definition of secret like God will come in and reveal everybody's secrets and like, or judge everybody's secrets, not necessarily reveal them. Well, I think they'll be revealed because- Well, I, they'll be revealed to you. I have no idea whether or not it gets revealed to everybody else. It might. Maybe that's how righteous judgment works. Everybody knows everything now. But yeah, so I just think that like, depending on like what you mean by secret, like, do you mean secrets as in like the things that nobody knows about you or the things that you are intentionally keeping secret? Not necessarily the things that you unintentionally just have never talked about, right? So, well, but, I think that could also be a thing if it's like, um, if you don't intentionally keep a secret, but it's still considered a secret. There's some maybe gray areas there. Maybe it's still right. intentional. I don't know. But this is just, I think, saying anyway, that, like, right. doesn't really matter like how you Me perceive that secret being intentional or not intentional. God knows what that is, and. Whatever it is, it's going to be judged. Good or bad, it's going to be judged. And all of those secret things, all of those hidden things will also be judged. You can't hide them from God. You can't keep them away from God. God knows everything. That was kind of the whole point of this, even though it was a really long discussion, just to say that short little thing. But yeah, and then the end of the verse, by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. I just like the, the way that Paul says that. He's like, according to my gospel here. Like, I wrote this and... Like I'm telling Jesus' story. And typically when we use the word gospel these days, we, we mean the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Paul is well, not included gospel, in that. You mean the whole Bible. And Paul is not typically included when we say the word gospel. <laughs> but but he's saying right here, he's like, my gospel. Right. I am bringing the good news to the world. Yep. All right. We've concluded the first half of chapter two. Woohoo! Look at us go. Do you have any more thoughts on Romans 2? It's interesting, like in one of the notes, it says secrets. Um, 
is it's sort of the note sort of defines secrets as motives to so people's motives to do things. Mm. Which I guess could be one version of the word secrets. <laughs> I think that's yeah, the first thing it made me think of was um the Enneagram because they talk about your motives for doing things. Mm -hmm. so I just think it's maybe that's why they do it. I can't say I know much about the Enneagram. Took it once. I definitely that's about it. I just I just know they, they look at the reason why you do things as opposed to what it is you're doing. Yeah, it's interesting that they use secrets and motivation together is like the same thing. Any other thoughts, Case? Um, don't forget your cement wall versus jello wall analogy. That's, it. So that's the most important thing to take out of today. <laughs> well, I think it's helpful to like know what it means to have a hard heart and not. And I think if we have hard hearts and we have cement walls, we need to figure out how to make them jello. Right. How do we turn cement into jello? Science experiment, y'all. <laughs> because God can't slash won't reach you if you're cement because you're not letting him. But he'll be able to reach you if you're jello because you let him. Mm -hmm. That's all. That was my thought. Okay. Pray it out then, sister. Dear God, uh, just thank you for today and hanging out with Casey and whoever other people might be listening. Uh, just uh, help us all remember what you would like us to remember and to have or to be able to apply some of this to our own lives. Um, and just help us to uh, remember your words and take them to heart and start breaking down our uh, impenitence. So uh, just thank you and praise you for this time. Uh, in your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. Bye.